Welcome to BC's Corner, episode five. Hello, hello, hello. Happy 2023. Happy the Christmas. Happy the Hanukkah. Happy the Kwanzaa. Happy, happy new year. I am so glad to be back behind the mic. I am so excited to continue the journey of BC's Corner with you. You'll notice that I spent half of December hiking through the mountains in California, and you'll see that I spent the other half in the DMV with some of my favorite people. Uh, But it feels good to be back in Chicago. And even now, it feels amazing to be back behind the mic. Uh, This project, this podcast, was started to host a variety of culture conversations featuring innovative voices and artistic champions. The goal of having necessary conversations that bridge the gap between the known and the unknown and deepen our understanding of our current realities. And today's conversation is no exception. Many of you know that I am an actor and because of COVID, I have also been able to pursue a corporate career in consulting. Uh, But even before that, I I was a full-time actor, a part-time Starbucks barista, uh, an Instacart shopper, and still finishing up my degree. And my guest today is the woman who made me believe that I could do that and then some. She helped chart my path from the Kennedy Center to Steppenwolf and the many opportunities that have followed. As I wanted to discuss the stories we tell and the larger role storytelling plays in our universe, I thought of no one better to provide insight and wisdom with her studied perspective. That we are all storytellers, all on our own hero's journey, cycle after cycle all in our own way, attempting to snatch a level of immortality, each embodying an archetype, repeating the same stories, whether we realize it or not. My guest for today is none other than Jane Drake Brody. She is currently a regular on the HBO series Somebody Somewhere that aired uh, this past year, yes, but was picked up for season two, and we wish her and the whole cast a hearty congratulations. And she's based really here in Chicago. For the longest time, she was based here in Chicago. She's now on the West Coast, but she was based here in Chicago. And it surprises me that many people don't realize uh, the, the real importance of Chicago in the theatrical landscape at large. And she helped develop that into what it is. She was a part of the foundation. She founded her own acting school at the time called the Audition Center, which is now known as Acting Studio Chicago. She also ran her own casting house, Jane Brody Casting, which is now known as Pascal Rudnicki Casting, still a major casting house in Chicago under new leadership. She is also a former associate professor of the theater school at DePaul University here in Chicago. She is also the celebrated author of two books, The Actor's Business Plan and Acting Archetypes in Neuroscience, which we'll get to dive into more in this conversation. But I really can't wait for you to join in with us as we talk about the stories we tell and so much more. You have been uh, such a trusted voice in my life 
for so long, really since 2018, when really? I initially read. Yeah, it's been 2018. And that's like a long, it's like five years ago. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I initially read your book, The Actor's Business Plan, which is used in universities. Some of the top conservatories in the country still reference the actor's business plan to help actors get started on their journey. And right. I knew that when I was attempting to pursue it, sitting in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, I knew that <laughs> if I were going to pursue it, uh, I wanted to know what to expect, how best to plan. And then that question we all ask are, am I good enough? You know, was I even good enough to pursue it? And your book, it, it, it encouraged me in such a remarkable way that I was determined that I needed to meet you. And I knew that you were based in Chicago and I was just determined. And I was like, I'm going to meet her. I want to learn from her. Even if I just get <laughs> a reply to an email, even if I just get a coffee date, it would be the world to me. And I sent you this very long email. Do you remember said email? Do you want to describe well, I it? Don't or know, was I? it an email or was it an actual letter? I don't recall, but I do remember it. And biblical references. That's what <laughs> I recall. <laughs> Many biblical references. I was I was desperate to find someone who would take me on. And I was very impressed. And you made such an impact on me. And I'm like, I just have to work with her. And mm -hmm. I remember uh, I, there's so many stories I can tell just about my journey as an actor and my journey with you, because my journey as an actor really came alive when I got connected with you. And you were really patient with me and you you allowed me to get to know myself which allowed my work to become clearer. And even yeah. now, uh, the gift of the pandemic was that I got to work more in the corporate world and be in different environments and travel a bunch. And it was it's through those experiences that the work I've been able to now do when I'm constantly auditioning and getting to work on you know fun projects, I'm able to channel that through those lessons I've had and continue to have with you. We just worked together a few weeks ago uh, right. on an audition. And so that's just me telling you how much you mean to me. And I know other actors would say the same. And it's well, just you mean a lot to me because you're hungry oh. you and you are willing to work hard. You're really willing to work. And I, that's an unusual quality in a lot of people. You have grit. Grit. <laughs> we were talking about that earlier of just like um, scouting and looking, be, being my own agent, even though I have an agent being my own agent and constantly looking for new opportunities and to speak to kind of the work we do as actors and as storytellers. I want to talk a bit about you and your career. And mm -hmm. I was going through, you have two books, uh, one, the actor's business plan, the second one being acting archetype and neuroscience. And when you look at your biography, Jane Drake Brody, you're the actress, you're the director, you're the casting director at one point, you're the teacher, you're the agent, you're the author, you're the scholar. And you say in your book, you say, and this is coming direct from the book, it says your hero's journey began when you were 14 years old, when you saw Hamlet at the Milwaukee Repertory Theater. Right. You say that you knew that from that time, that's what you wanted to do. You wanted to act. But more, you wanted to be a citizen of the theater. You yeah. wanted to be a part of a world that could easily transport not just yourself, but others to imaginary places of beauty and wisdom safely. You refer to it as your hero's journey. And I think of when you think of hero's journey, it's that archetype. It's that template for adventure from morality to us now wielding the divine and coming out stronger and wiser and have ventured into many different worlds right. did it does it because you're still alive you're not done you know you're still oh. working to this day 
Right. Does it look like you thought it would? Oh, golly, what a great question. Does my life look like what I thought it would? Well, you know, I never was one to think what it will look like. Hmm. All I knew was that I wanted to act. It wasn't about being famous or making money or anything like that. I was, uh, in a sense, called to the theater. I I feel that my life has turned out of course, as I wish it to, because I made choices and choices are uh, for better, or for worse, what you do. Do I think, I think really now that I really am cogitating that when I was young, I thought I needed to go to New York or Los Angeles, New York predominantly. And when I met my husband and married him, he didn't want to go to New York. And so I never did. And I think that is possibly the one regret I have. On the other hand, if I'd done that, I probably wouldn't have written those books. I probably wouldn't have a stable marriage. You know, you can look, hindsight is twenty twenty. But I don't think, no, my life didn't turn out the way I thought it would, but then I never thought it would turn out in any particular way, except I knew that I was not a traditional woman. I knew that I was not going to be a woman with family. I knew that I had to steer my own course if I possibly could. I mean, and so, you know, uh, I think if I'm looking ahead, it's that. When did you become conscious of your own hero's journey? Because some of us, there's a point where I believe I was just living life. And then there's a point that I became conscious that my choices had an impact that gave me a connection, I would say. And we're going to dive more into that when I say connection to the divine. But like my my choices had a real impact on my life and the world and the story that I told about myself and created for myself. When did you become conscious of that? Um, that I was on my own journey. Is that what mm-hmm. you're asking me? That you, yeah, that you were on your own journey and it mattered. When did it start to matter to you? You know, I think I was very young. I think I was very, very young. But if we're looking at a hero's journey, you received the call, right? And I received the call when I saw that Hamlet. And then you kind of refused the call. And it was during that time that I said, I think I'll be a costumer because it was too frightening. And then I looked again and I was called again because I would be, I don't know, cast in things or asked to audition for things, which I did do. I began to see the form of that because if you look at the way the hero's journey works or the heroine's journey, I don't think it's that different for men or women. I know the people who say it is, but I don't think so. I, I think that when I saw the Hamlet, when I was at odds with my parents about being a performer and that I overcame those odds and decided to go my own way. When I met with, uh, you know, if you look at the hero's journey, you meet with the goddess and you meet with the God and all of that. I met with the goddess and she was an acting teacher, an Hmm. old lady, very old crone at the university of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. And she, and she encouraged me tremendously. As a matter of fact, she asked me to uh, put get heavy blankets and pin them to my shoulders so that I would walk in a in a imperial way. And so, so I met with. I, if you're looking at the hero's journey, my meeting with Ms. Rodigan, Mary Virginia Rodigan, was probably one of the cycles of my life. But you know, the hero's journeys get cycled and cycled and cycled because when you hit one moment of okay, I'm here now. Life doesn't work like that. You go on another journey. You say that in your book, you say you may go through one 
uh, a spindle, I guess, or one cycle of the wheel of a hero's journey several times throughout your life. You may mm-hmm. think it's over, but it's really just started again. And the thing that's changed is you, is your circumstances as right. you've grown and as you've matured and you've gone through, I call it the odyssey of life. I don't know if that's the right way yeah. to say it, but Makes the sense. odyssey yeah. of life. Yeah. And the other thing is, I think I began to very early only do what I wanted to do. I was that child and I was attracted to many, many, many things. I think that's like you in a way, very attracted to all kinds of different things. I want to do it all. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I did. And, and I never thought, well, I'll be a casting director or I'll be a director or any of that. I, as with everyone, I started out with the desire to be the the actor, which is who is the the person that is most obvious in in a theater uh, to a kid. And as I grew, I began to see, well, you know, I may not have the personality to be an actor. I'm a bossy girl and maybe I need (laughs) to be maybe I need to be directing. And, you know, I mean, I, I and then I think what I did was when a door opened or appeared, I walked through it. I didn't say no. I didn't deny things to which I was attracted because I think that is the divine voice. The things to which you are attracted that are life affirming, I think, are sacred. And if you hide your talent under a bushel, if you don't respond to those things that you are so consciously and unconsciously drawn to, you are in essence kind of sinning against yourself if you want to put it in that in a sacred term. I rarely did and I rarely do anything that doesn't feel right to me, doesn't feel good to me. I don't t- I never took a job because I thought, well, I need money. Yeah. And I also thought I have always thought money will come. I've all, I don't know why I never had any money, but I had this inherent belief, a part of my structure, that money will come. And it does. I mean, I'm not rich or anything, but I can get by. <laughs> but you, you also define it as a call. And I would want you to explain yeah. it just a bit more because a lot of people say, like, I want to act, I want to be an actor. And then it's that question. And I've heard it, you know, not just from you, but from other people within the industry of, you know, are you called? And that's typically something you only hear in religious or spiritual settings where the great deity, the universe, God, whatever, you know, your chosen person or chosen um, uh, ball of energy is, I will say, has called you forward into something greater than what you are. I think if you mentioned it in your book, and it's one of my favorite musicals in the Fantastics, Louisa says, oh, God, please don't make me normal. But in the sense Don't of let being, me be normal. Yeah. But in a sense of yeah. being called, you've been called whether you want it or not. Like you can want normalcy, yes. but it's called you forward. How would you put that call, your call into words? Uh well, A, the hero doesn't uh decide what the journey's going to be. The journey visits the hero. Hmm. Um, but the call, I believe that theater, acting, film, all of those are parts of rather sacred rituals. We no longer think of in, in in those ways. But if you really go back, if you really think about what does, quote unquote, the entertainment industry do for us, it helps us to make transitions through life that we need to make. It is a part of a ritual behavior for a, for a community, for a person, for a family, for a world. And once you start seeing 
that there are patterns to these things. They're not like God wants me to do this. It's more like this is my duty. Yeah. I think that's how I feel about it. I'm meandering. I don't mean to. But this idea that I have something within me that must be given. That will and by giving it, it will increase is where I where I've been. And I found that when I don't follow those kinds of impulses, I get stuck in the belly of the whale, as we would say, Mm. uh, you know, and I can't really make a choice. And then all of a sudden the choice comes to me. I don't go. I don't logically figure out what I'm going to do. And that impacts and that impacts your version of success. Like you just mentioned a few moments ago, you said to yourself, the money will come, but I have to say, yes, I have to feed this part of myself. How has that shifted or altered success? Because I'm Mm -hmm. around a bunch of consultant types now and success is determined on, you know, how close are you to six figures, if not already to six figures in your, you know, what do you, what, what kind of money are you making? What is your career track? And it's defined by dollar amounts and not necessarily by what you're giving to the world. How have you handled that version of success when juxtaposed with so many people that may be your peers, your friends, your loved ones? Well, I never was attracted to any kind of corporate organization of any sort. And I lived in a few of them and I didn't like it. It didn't make any difference to me. I wasn't there to make money. And I had not grown up with any real money. I had grown up from the time I was 14 working. And I'm not saying that to be, well, I was working when I was four. I don't know. It was, it was, I was forced through circumstance to be incredibly independent And so I could live on $2 a month or I could live on $2,000 or $2 million a month. That wouldn't matter to me because I've never put any value in money. Hmm. Now, I never had children. If you have a family, you better make the bucks, you know, and I, I haven't had that kind of family. So money doesn't, while it's important, while I, I work for it every day, I'm not saying I don't, I just stand here and wish, um, (laughs) I put the I put it out there, uh, things I want to do or people I want to talk to or whatever. But it's never about the money. It's always about uh, being, as I say in the book, a citizen of the theater, being a contributor to the congregation, as it were, being a part of something that is greater than myself. And that is the historic background of the theater as both church and kind of business, a combination of those things. But it starts with the spiritual aspects when it began historically. And I think there's not an actor alive that won't tell you that there are times when all of a sudden something flows through you when you're acting, if you're lucky, and you may be touched with that three or four times in your life, but it flows through you and it makes you aware that you are a small cog in the universe and that you are there to release that energy that has gone through you from God to you through your mouth or through body, whatever. And I really feel that I'm thinking right now, I have this picture of me singing that song, Breck song, I was singing it in a dinner theater basement in a cabaret with maybe, you know, 100 seats or something. But something touched me so deeply when I was singing that song for the, I don't know, 80th time. It touched me so deeply that I was absolutely changed Hmm. when I was through. And that is a spiritual experience, however you want to look at it. 
And and acting and storytelling, it is a spiritual experience. And with training with you, you've often said, you know, training and technique is what you have if the gods do not decide to grace you that day. Because there are those moments, there are those uh, those scenes, those interactions where it's like something is happening here and I'm, it's all impulse and I'm just going with it and it's all the divine. And then there are others where it's like technique, technique, technique. Right. And the show is over. Right. And... Mm -hmm. And there, there's storytelling in the context of being an actor, but then there's also storytelling in our lives when it comes to, you know, business, politics, family dynamics, what we see on stage and what we see on screen is purely just an imitation of our human nature. And storytelling mm-hmm. is an essential part of the human experience. Where right. there is life, there must be imitation. You've often said this phrase to me, and I... I love it. And I always remember it when I'm ever I'm watching something, um, whether it's storytelling in the format of stage or screen or otherwise. But she said, Brian, there are no new stories. Right. All the stories have been written. What we are simply seeing are the same myths, the same rituals, the same legends put into different given circumstances, cultures and settings. Can you speak mm-hmm. more to that? Well, if you figure that there's only six essential relationships in the world. That is uh, uh, husbands and wives, parents and children, siblings, extended family, and then way down below friends. And then God, if you want to say God is a relationship, usually that means somebody like your grandfather. We can't get our heads around God. So often we have an imitation. If there's only those six relationships, there's only algebraic uh, number of stories that can come out of them because stories are about overcoming conflict, overcoming difficulty. Well, it takes two to tango. You need a person to represent the difficulty. You need a person that is overcoming the difficulty. That's the story that we keep seeing over and over and over again. And everybody acts like it's new. The other part of it is that every story is about the conflict between order and chaos, or shall I say it, society's rules and the rules for adventurers who want to move past a rule-bound past. And you can look at that in every television show, every movie, that's always going to be there. And it will be exploited, that order versus chaos, will be exploited by making each character on one side of that option or the other. So, for instance, Seinfeld, Kramer is the exact end of chaos. He is, whoa, he's out there on the chaotic end, right? And there's Seinfeld in the middle observing that. And everybody else in the show has some level of order versus chaos. So while, for instance, George makes chaos, Mm -hmm. He actually has an orderly desire in his heart. He's always looking for a job. He's always trying to get married. He's always looking for that kind of thing, whereas Kramer just wants freedom. He doesn't want to commit to anything at all. He does it for what? How long? Two seconds. (laughs) I'm sorry if I'm referring to an old TV show that nobody watches. No, it works. You make a thread of connection in your work and, and in our work together between rituals and myths and their ability to link us in the recognition of our shared humanity. Yes. Uh, that regardless of the given circumstances in a given story, what mm-hmm. truly unifies us as people, as you were articulating before, are that native link 
between the things of old. Can you speak more to what is it about those myths and rituals that we we keep oh. coming back to them over and yeah. over again? Even though we may not know it. Yeah. We may not even recognize it. My theory is that myth, a part of the reptilian brain, it's a part of we're born with this idea of these gigantic stories, but they only come to life when we encounter something that brings them to the fore. So we encounter a mountain that we can't go over. We need a myth and a ritual in order to transition from the land over the mountain to the next land. What the rituals activate the myth. They give a, a boundary to the myth. So I'm using a Christian example. Uh, communion is a ritual that gives life to the receiver and that represents the myth, the mythical hero. Right. And, and I'm with you. And it's the same as uh, in, in that uh, House of Dragons. Yeah. They are at once dragons and servants and masters of the dragons. And it's the rituals that have, need to be created by any society in order to be safe in an uncomfortable world is what everyone's always done. Call it religion, call it science, whatever we're doing, we're always looking, society is always looking for safety. And so the rituals are there to make things safe that may not have been safe originally. And you make the assertion in your book that as societies and communities evolved, you mentioned community um, communion. Uh, you also mentioned House of the Dragon. I want to stick a pin there. Uh, but you make the assertion that as societies and communities have evolved, as we were colonized and colonizers, as we were oppressed and mixed and moved on, that spirituality became second to entertainment. So mm -hmm. to make a church example, since we're on that, many churches mm -hmm. now resemble a lot of the clubs, uh, a lot of the bars, a lot of the, you know, entertainment venues than they do uh, houses of wor worship, per se. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and House of the Dragon, uh, if you follow kind of uh, Game of Thrones and the lore all the way through, you know that the, what makes the Dance of the Dragon significant is that the Targaryens lose the dragons, which were that secret, that mystery uh, that gave them their superiority. And that's yeah. why when you look at the first series, Game of Thrones, her having dragon, three dra dragon eggs hatch was so incredibly significant. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you think that that is largely where we exist now in society, especially with our entertainment? Are we, are we getting away from the spirituality or are we stuck more in entertainment? Well, that's a hard question. I, I think we're stuck in entertainment and I think we're stuck in a hedonistic view of the world. Um, Say more to that. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's hedonism. That is living the life of the body, not the life of the spirit. Uh, science is living the life of the mind, but not the life of the of the spirit. And art is the thing that can bring us back to spiritual matters, even when we are unaware of it. Uh, mm -hmm. All these TV shows always have some sort of moral perspective of which we are unaware, but which we fully buy into. So even babies know the difference between what is fair and what isn't fair. And that's a part of human genome. 
And uh, you can watch the experiments that they do with babies. And if they've got more than the other baby, they'll often give to the other baby something. If you look at it now, the privileging of money and sex, I'm not saying sexuality, I hate that word, of sex (laughs) and money is being put up as, as the thing that you want, is the thing that you should be a part of, is the thing that is important in, in terms of values. And for me, that's because a capitalist society can value those things and don't need a spiritual basis. Really, mm-hmm. don't, they think they don't need it. And now, now, right now, the entire United States is turning towards this full spiritual experience as they all run into their churches and they all justify evil acts with good intentions or the good book, as it were. And I think that the hunger for spirituality is sometimes diminished by the, the love of the body, the love of pleasure, the love of comfort. And yet we know that the world is not comfortable. The world is not controllable. And that huge thing is frightening to us. So we have to bring it down. We have to somehow en- encapsulate it. So, so I that think you, you cover safe. this in your book. I believe so. Um, you talk through the idea that I believe was further expounded on by Ernest Becker. He had the 1973 no, he was, book, he was the, the first one. Denial. Yeah. yeah. And, and you denial say that he theorizes that what motivates us at our core essentially is the fear of death. Right. Um, and then you present the alternative to that. Um, and I believe I'm trying to think through who said it. Uh, but the alternative assertion was that sexual adjustment is the essential force behind uh, human behavior. And oh, that was Freud. The that was Freud. OK. Am I, am I doing it justice so far? Yeah, you, yeah, you are, because because Freud wanted to stop at a small place. Mm. Whereas Jung, who was a student of Freud's and then went went off. Jung says, no, it's not about it's not just about sex. It's really about our connections to God, humanity and ourselves and and our fear of death. That's a Jungian trying to solve spelled J-U-N-G, a major philosopher. And I'm of Jungian perspective because Jung says there's such a thing as the gestalt, which is the general feeling around a group of people or in a group of people or in a what is that general feeling? And that seems to me to be partially sacred. You know, this this yearning that we see right now in all of these people running around uh, finding bizarre churches and cults and all of that. I think it comes from that, that hunger. That hunger to, to snatch a level of immortality? Yes. Or, or is it the pursuit of legacy? No, I think it's to snatch a level of, of immortality. It's how do I, how do I live forever? How do I never die? And that's, I mean, that's the Christ story. Uh, you know, you will be born again. That's the whole point of the story and many people's lives. I personally don't buy into it, but I think I was going to ask you, I wanted you to clarify that because people are going to listen to this and they're going to think, I don't, you're a Christian. You, you're, no. you're, you're extremely spiritual, Jane. And so yes, hearing mm-hmm. you speak, it, it, it almost, some people will be confused by that to say that you're not a Christian, but no. your, your knowledge base and the way that you can articulate spirituality, you've definitely had spiritual experiences in your life. Yes, I definitely have. And no, I am not a Christian. I don't think that's the only way to go. No, I am not a Muslim. I don't think that's the only way to go. I am a former Buddhist because Buddhist says we don't know, make it make it up yourself, kind of. 
<laughs> they can be good and go on. I mean, it's not that, uh, not, it's a quite a different thing. Um, I have, I have difficult, I wasn't born in a, in a Christian society. I wasn't born in a Jewish society. I was born in an atheist society in my family. We didn't go to church. We didn't do any of those things that so many others do. And so you got to make your own way. And for me, it was beauty. The, the spiritual longing was made up of the beauty of, of words. Um, I would go to these churches just to see the prettiness of it all, the beauty of it, uh, the the beauty of thought, the beauty of the world. That to me is too big to be encompassed by any one sect or religion or idea. Uh, I think we stand in awe of the huge things. And in order to cut them down to size, we create religions. Hmm. Because standing in awe is a very uncomfortable place and you're stuck there, right? It's hard to maneuver. It's what James Joyce says. You stand before the um, eternal and every now and then you look up and you can glimpse what's beyond it. And it frightens you so much that you go back to your day because you can't conceive of the grandness of it all. It's too much for humans. And speaking to to archetypes, we've kind uh-huh. of dived into it throughout the thread of this conversation. Uh, but in your book, you say archetypes are biological facts, yes. uh, that they are often in plain sight. We were speaking to that earlier when it comes to heroes' journeys, but th- those are, they're connected and they often are in plain sight if we only open up our eyes to see them. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to ask this question. Maybe it's a silly question. How were these archetypes established? Was it purely through man's imagination, yearning? Uh, we know that myth exists, but do you have language to put to its origination? I think they emerge from the back brain and are given names depending on the society in which you live. I think they come from the geography of the society from which they emerge. So the the relationship to the spiritual for people who live in deserts is going to be quite different from those who live in jungles or those who live in cities or those who live rurally. They're just going to be quite different. And I think that the archetypes are, to make a definition, the essential pattern for just about anything. It is the perfection of a particular uh, way of being or form. That's what an archetype is. So the archetypes are the gods, shall we say, and they each represent a certain power, a certain energy. So for me, an actor working on a script wouldn't be wrong to find what's the archetype, not the caricature, not the stereotype. So who is the essential warrior? That's an archetype. I want you to clarify the difference between a stereotype and an archetype. Oh, a stereotype, it has only one characteristic it takes away the complication so that when we go to war, for instance, the uh, government that's gone to war is going to put out stereotypes about the enemy because then they can be reduced in their humanity. They're not complex. A- like An example are. of that could be with when COVID-19 became really bad and our former president decided to call it the China virus. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, because they're the land of mystery mm-hmm. and they're the land that we don't know anything about. Therefore, it must be them. Right. And I, I think that archetypes are the are the basis for every character in any in any place at all, a novel or 
play or movie or whatever. There's always the archetypal perfection. And then there's the way in which the characters deviate from that or or contain all of it. And again, I'm going back to House of Dragons because I was looking at that. The archetype of the king. Viserys, yeah. The king is supposed to be strong and powerful. And he does try to fulfill his archetypal assignment, but he cannot. He is strong about certain things. He's not fulfilling his mission. And an archetype of a king must be fulfilled. So that's why the, I mean, that's not why, but so the problem of the succession is all messed up because he hasn't laid a pattern that Mm. is doable. You know, I mean, maybe that there's other reasons, but, you know, and then you look at his brother and there's all these myths of brothers competing and his brother is total chaos and the king is total order. The king, you cannot have all that order because tribes are going to attack you. You've got to be ready to confront chaos. And the same is true of or of uh, chaos. You can have chaos all the time. And the problem of society is finding the balance of those things. That's true in our own psyches and our own emotional lives as it is for the world, as it is for families to balance. It's always, where's the equilibrium? Where's the balance? And then something's going to come along and shove the balance out of order. And so then the play begins, then the movie begins. What has unbalanced this? And how do we fight to rebalance? But as we rebalance, we move up the spiritual chain. We move up that, you know, the car, the, what do they call those things? Yes. And you can argue that the balance in House of the Dragon, because Viserys the King was alive through the first uh, seven seasons, I believe, of the 10 season, first season. And everyone that I've talked to, they've commented that, oh, but it's so slow. Oh, but there's so much background because I guess the story hasn't truly begun until the balance is disrupted. And that balance is disrupted when Viserys ultimately dies, leaving the succession in question. What would you speak to the archetype of his wife who survives and has her own kids and the daughter of the previous marriage who's trying to go after what's promised to her? It is so fascinating. I was thinking about this. Um, I was thinking about, and maybe I'm on the wrong topic with you, but thinking about the wife that dies in childbirth. Mm, Queen Emma, yeah. Uh, Queen Emma dies. And at the same time that uh, uh, tournament is going on. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, uh, Daenerys, our, our lead, is stuck between those worlds. She's not present at that birth, although she somehow observes it. And she is in the council listening to them as she serves them wow. wine or whatever. And she's stuck between the two of them, between the domestic and the female and the, uh, I don't know what you call it, domestic, external world of the men. And how do those things come together? And it seems to me that every time you look at a play or a movie like that, there's always the external understanding of the conflict and the internal understanding of the conflict. Mm. Because, and it all goes down to who ourselves. So I have this problem with being stuck between two worlds, right? I also uh, have had to make choices that I didn't know about. I also have been a willing participant in things I didn't believe in. We all do that. And so one of the things that I find interesting about that is that Daenerys needs to make compromises that she really doesn't want to make 
but she's also on a spiritual journey to discover how can a female with a female power. And a lot of the conflict is her wanting to embrace her masculine by yes. having a lover if she wants to have a lover uh, right. and still being a woman, but embracing the masculine. Will I still be received by the Lords? Yes. And received by the Lords. Just cut off the S. Right. You know, how is she going to get through this and and become a full human being? Because as a woman, she is not a full human being. That didn't happen until 1950 or 60. Right. I mean, she she it was just the same as slaves. You were not a full you were counted as three fourths or three eighths or whatever. Women had were in the same position, especially in the Middle Ages that the show refers to, although it doesn't stay there. Uh, But it, it refers to that that mythical time. And so the myth that she's dealing with so many layered rituals, layered myths, the myths of the dragons and who they are, because dragons are reptiles, Mm. right? And Eve goes to the garden and she sees the snake. I mean, there's, there's, that's already going to be there in our back mind. The story of Adam and Eve and the snake. We know that the fear of snakes, for instance, is an inherent human fear. And you have Anybody. a family now that can tame them and yeah. that their their power is built on their affiliation with the snake. Yeah. And because that dragon is so immense, they have to tame them. And what does that say about our own selves? We have dragons within ourselves that must be welcomed and tamed because you cannot fight the dragons. And I think that that's a big part of what they're talking about in that series. And what is power? If you can't fight the dragons, are you really powerful? Their society is completely man-made and made up, but it's made up out of their own myth, which grows from family. The father is king, the mother is queen. And to you know, your point, the, yeah. their, their uh, disregard for spirituality, it's because of their lack and disregard for how they've been able to tame said reptiles in the first place that right. leads to their demise. And then no future generations know the secrets. They're right. lost because of, I guess, they, they weren't concerned with the deeper levels of power, but more the surface. I think that's true. Yeah. Yes. I haven't watched all of it, so I can't speak to that, but I think you you're right. You very well, Jane. I'm... <laughs> Thank you. I think it's I think it's a fascinating series, but I compare it to the TV series Succession. It's the exactly. same damn same story. Mm-hmm. Same stories, right? There's only uh, 36 plots, I believe, and six relationships. That's kind of a six times six thing. Um, and I'm sure that there are derivations of those. But I think for us as actors and us as directors and performers, it's very important that we get to the to the basis of the story, the basis of the character, the basis, rather than falling for the decoration around the story. Uh, the given circumstances are one thing. The other thing is what is the truth of human life? You often said to me when we would work on scripts, we'd, you know, scene study or an audition and you'd be like, so what's happening? And then I'll say something. You're like, that's plot. <laughs> right. You're like, that's plot, dear. What's happening? Right. And, and having to go and look at large, what is going on? And um, I call it, we called it the heavenlies. What's going yeah. on up there? And keeping that in the back of the mind as you move through plot. Yes, yes, yes. And I think now our society is so literal that they mistake plot for story. 
they make they mistake plot for the be all and end all, which is why we have all those car crashes and all of that. That's plot, and why our our entertainment world is aimed at fourteen year old boys. I mean, that's actually actually true. Yeah. Uh, one of they write news. The newspaper's got to be able to be read by a fourteen year old boy, right? So this idea that we need to play the plot, the plot's there. You can't do that. So then the question is, what do I do as an actor? What do I do as a to make the plot occur? And that depends on who I am and who my protagonist antagonist is. That's how the plot occurs. The plot cannot occur without the human uh, need to get better, to to win, however you want to put it. Yeah. And I have a few actors I know that listen, but um, largely folks who are going to be listening to this. I I love that you guys are hearing this conversation because you're getting a little peek behind the veil, per se, uh, of how we think as artists. But this way of thinking, I also think is applicable as a viewer. I find myself why I love watching certain movies uh, is because I can tap into what's happening, as we say, in the heavenlies. Uh, of what is the real story happening. And then what makes it interesting is just how the given circumstances affects the rollout, similar to how you said Viserys as the good king did not complete his journey because of his given circumstances. But knowing that that battle is there makes it even more interesting between order and chaos. Right. And so what advice would you... Strong enough to do it. Yeah weak, incredibly weak, and tries, you know, to set things right. But even then, it was too little, too late. Uh, Mm -hmm. What advice do you have just for viewers as we watch stories, as we tell our own stories, as we participate in this world that really is just a mosaic of different stories put together? What what advice do you have? I guess you said it, look behind the veil, look beyond the car crash, look beyond the plot. We are always in relationship in the world in order for anything to happen. We can't get through the life without confronting other humans. That implies the need to create a relationship. The relationships are what makes everything turn in the world. So if I have a problem in a relationship, that is going to be reflected in the world. It's going to go out like a pebbles in a stream and then back in on itself. Uh, so that each character represents on that scheme of order chaos, they represent a vested interest to fight for. Without them fighting and seeking conflict, nothing can grow. There is no growth without conflict. Uh, Nietzsche says a blade of grass has to come into conflict with the earth in order to reach the sun. True. And We have many ways of resolving conflict. Ritual is one way to do that. Religion is a way to do that. Myth is a way to do it. Myth and its its attendant archetypes. And the archetypes are those energies, those powers that are used to overcome problems that we face every day in life. And as always with as actors and as artists, we don't honestly know if we've ever hit it really on the money. But I think it's being aware to this conversation that makes the difference in how yes, not only yes. do we view art, but how we participate in art. Because mm-hmm. what is life but art? What is what we see on stage and screen but an imitation of our lives, just with heightened circumstances? As you say, and this is the day that and everything character choices. Those yeah. are the archetypes. That's the hero who's Harrison Ford is the archetype of the of the warrior hero. He's gonna go out and and do what we need to do, and he keeps us safe. 
We yeah. see that, oh, it can be overcome. It is, mm. I can do it. Conflict can be resolved. I, I have a student right now, a young woman, and um, I said, what is your biggest fear in life? Just herself. She said, oh, conflict. I do everything to avoid conflict. Well, I said there, you're going to have to start. <laughs> going to have to start dealing with some conflict because without coming into conflict with anything, you're lost. And conflict is not just fighting; it's negotiation. It's how do how do we both win? And yet, when conflict starts in a in a play or a movie, generally, nobody sees that there is probably a third way <laughs> to resolve things. Without conflict, um, there is no drama, right? There's no reason to watch a story if there is no conflict. One of the houses in House of the Dragon, House Valerion, they're they're seafarers, and they give the advice to Viserys in the show. They say a wise sailor goes into the storm or he sails around the storm. Right. There's not that many options between the two, as you said before there. And that made me just think of that. No, you can't. You've got to meet you've got to meet the dragons along the way. You've got to in order to grow. You've got to get out there, put it out there and suffer. You know, it's the every prophet, every story. They're all about that. And Jane, I want to acknowledge the story that you're currently a part of right now on HBO. You can't see Jane uh, on HBO right now. She's on Somebody Somewhere. They were renewed for season two. Season one is currently on HBO right now. I want to ask, just in closing, uh, what has it been like, you know, to 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 have a series, to go through COVID uh, and really get the opportunity to to do what you love to do? Well, it's very odd, really, Brian. I do love to act, but I I haven't pursued it in years and years. And it was a fluke that I got that role. And it's very interesting to me that during this time, I mean, it's not like the world is arranged for me, um, but the idea that we all have to, in the pandemic, conserve ourselves and protect ourselves, that goes throughout the show. You know, I mean, it's not just my own personal connection to how do I preserve myself, my family? How do I protect myself? How do we keep safe? In somebody somewhere, uh, Bridget, the lead, goes back to town because she didn't finish that part of the journey. She Mm. didn't finish it. And she's got to go back and get into conflict with everyone in her life if she is to grow spiritually. Including you, who plays her mom. Yes. Yeah. And I, in the show, I'm an alcoholic, which means that my God is is the alcohol. I can't open out yet to a larger scope. Perhaps in the show, I will. Right. I think it's very interesting in the show that they're looking for a church. Um, I think it's one of the reasons that, that the show is popular is because... It speaks to spiritual longings. It's not just about, well, this is the husband and the wife and they're having a problem. And again, James Joyce says that you can see any story on its base level. She goes home to visit and has problems. And then you can see it on the sociological level. She's this woman who doesn't know who she is right now, who is dealing with a gay community sociologically and her parents are not doing well. They're farmers in the in in the Midwest. They're they're getting by. So that's that's the sociological level. Then you go to the political level of what's the power. Where's the power? 
That's all politics is always about power, right? And then you go to the spiritual level and is which is what is the relationship with God in the universe? And every story needs all of those uh layers to be really, you know, effective. And so much of TV, so much of sitcom is stops. It stops at the sociological. It stops with, well, Bobby, you shouldn't beat up on your friend, right? Or it stops at the political. It's all about the government repressing us or or that. But when you really open up that veil that James Joyce saw as he opened up the heavens, it's much larger than that. And so even the ideas that we have about these things are centered in a way to make us safe, to make us surround it and define it. Because if you can surround it and define it, you can have power over it. And then my last question, what are you most looking forward to? Well, looking forward is maybe trying to or uh, working on it. I want to uh, direct some shows. I'm going to fin- I'm going to do some more acting, but acting really isn't where I live. I like it. It's fine. But it's too easy. I mean, to really <laughs> want to do something, you have to have some difficulty with it. That That's what motivates us to do it, right? There's the pain of, I can't do that. I'm going to try to do it. I really want to become a consultant for um, directors, actors, and writers, screenwriters, or or playwrights. I think I have uh, analytical skills that most people don't have to be able to point in a script or in a performance to one thing that can be fixed that will open out the thing and give it life. And that's what I want to do. And I started that yesterday by emailing some of my famous students and saying, here's what I want to do. Can you can you help me with that? Because I don't know if that's even a job. I don't know if people even do it. Right. And you have plenty of famous students. I didn't One I didn't of my name students, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. I have students that you don't know that are famous that are head of like script development for HBO or one of or, yours is actually one of my favorite. She's um executive producer of one of my favorite shows, Gilded Age on HBO. Can I say and her name? She? Sally yeah. Richardson Whitfield. Sally. Yeah. Love Sally. Yeah. I love every time I see her name and she directs an episode, I'm like, this is so good. Sally from our alley. That's what I always called her. (laughs) Sally from the alley. Sally is, yeah. I mean, I have these students. And so what I'm trying to do now is to start a career in consultation for anybody who needs it in terms of the script, in terms of where's the script going? What are the problems? So I was working with an actor yesterday and he's got a dog of a script to do. It's just, I'm not going to say the name of it or anything. And our problem is to solve the uh the the difficulties of acting a bad script how do you do that right mm-hmm. and as we all know that's got to do with becoming so fully human that the circumstance the script doesn't really matter that much but you know in some scripts you need a little help need a little help. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know there's there's great scripts and not so great scripts but Jane, I, I just can't thank you enough for uh, what you've been to me in my life, but also for coming on the show and sharing so much wisdom around storytelling and the true power of it and the role that we all play uh, in this world, in this mosaic that is being created right before our eyes. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been fun, really fun. Questions I hadn't anticipated. 
Thank you so much, Jane, for coming on the show today. Uh, if you want to connect with Jane, if you want to know more about her, there are some links in the show notes for you to be able to connect. And also, you can watch her as season two of HBO's Somebody Somewhere premieres real soon. Thank you so much for watching today. I can't wait to continue this journey with you all. See you soon. Bye.